0: From St. Anne's Catholic Church in Broken Arrow, you are now listening to Forming Our Faith with Deacon Kevin. I'm Deacon Kevin, and this is Forming Our Faith, where we take a look into the many layers of our Catholic faith and hopefully grow in appreciation for the great gift the faith is. A little while ago, here in the parish, we had a listening session for people whose adult children have left the Catholic Church. And the point of the time we spent was not to respond or react to the reasons parents gave for their children's departure from the church, but only to hear them. There were several themes that emerged from the time spent listening, and one of them was that children raised in the faith don't know the faith well enough, so they left something they didn't really understand. Or they left something they thought they understood, but what they were rejecting really wasn't the Catholic Church as it is, but the Catholic Church as they imagined and assumed it to be. The hope for forming our faith is to present the Catholic Church—what it believes, what it practices, what it does—as it is. And seeing the Church this way has to be attractive, because the Church is the Bride of Christ and is beautiful. Beauty always attracts those who truly seek the good, So the Church, as it is, is attractive. That's not to say its beauty is easy to live out or that its members are flawless. But if we understood the Church as Jesus Christ instituted it, there's no way we would ever want to leave it. The motto for forming our faith comes from Pope St. John Paul II in one of his addresses to young people. Never ever settle for anything less than the heroism for which you were made. It may very well be that the heroism for which you were made is to be the catalyst for a wayward Catholic's return to the Church. It may very well be that your evangelical task as a Catholic is to show the Church and its beauty to those who are convinced that the Church is ugly. The first place we're doing this and forming our faith is the Mass. The Mass, after all, is what we all do as Catholics at least every week. If we're observing the precepts of the Church and attending Mass at least every Sunday and Holy Day, that means we're going to Mass at least 58 times a year. We're standing shoulder-to-shoulder with our Catholic brothers and sisters in worship at least 58 times each year. We're not doing anything else in the Church at least 58 times a year, probably, so the Mass has to be the principal and primary way most of us are formed in the faith. That's why I'm talking about it first. During the last episode, we finally got to the beginning of the Mass, the procession of the servers and ministers from the back of the church to the front, that happens as the first liturgical action of the Mass. The procession might last 30 seconds or a minute, but there's so much that needs to be said about it that it took maybe 40 minutes to lay it all out. And the big idea was that the procession at the beginning of Mass is a symbol of this earthly pilgrimage from death to life, away from darkness and toward light, the journey to our heavenly home. You might not be participating in the liturgical procession, but you're represented in it, and you're most definitely on that journey to eternity. Mass begins with this powerful reminder that in the life of faith, and the life of grace, there's no standing still. I also said a little bit last time about the music that might accompany the procession at the beginning of mass. Most Catholics simply take it for granted that there's a hymn at the beginning of mass, but this is, if we consider the entire history of the church, a relatively recent innovation coming into the liturgy in the 1500s. Prior to that, what would have been sung or more properly chanted during the procession is the introit a short antiphon taken from Scripture that provides an echo of the prayers, the song, and the readings that will be proclaimed during the Mass. The introit is provided in the Missal. The celebrant or the cantor or the choirmaster don't get to pick it. The Church has abandoned using the introits for the most part because their texts change from Mass to Mass, which means the people would need to have those texts in front of them. To be able to sing them instead of or in addition to a hymnal. There would have to be an introitol. The pews could get crowded with many or with thick books. Remember, the Mass is all about the worship of God. The Church provides what she does for Mass because the Mass is the way the people of God worship God as the people of God. God has indicated how we are to worship him, And it would be the height of blasphemy for us to say that God should be worshipped in any other way. The readings, the prayers, the antiphons, everything the Church provides for the Mass are there because, for that day and for that Mass, those are the most appropriate means through which God can be worshipped and adored with full reverence. A way you can guarantee that you're worshiping as the church intends for us to worship on a particular day is to use what the church provides on that day. And I say this not to knock hymns, but to point out that hymns aren't provided in the Missal. And if they're not provided, that means they have to be selected. And hymns can be selected for a wide range of reasons, and not all of them are equivalent. The best reason to select a hymn is the same reason the introit would be chanted. It resonates with everything else in the Mass. When cantors or choir masters are selecting the hymns for Mass, they need to be attentive to the content of that Mass's prayers and readings and select hymns that have those themes. If the Gospel is about the Good Shepherd who leaves the 99 sheep to go after the one sheep that strayed, The opening hymn should somehow capture that image. The prince of love my shepherd is makes much more sense than faith of our fathers. Both are solid hymns, but the former is more appropriate for the propers of that mass. Now, that leads to something else in regard to hymns. And I say this with some trepidation, because music is one of those things that people tend to feel very strongly about. Not all hymns are solid. The lyrics of some of the hymns sung in Catholic churches don't just fail to resonate with the prayers and the readings during Mass, but are theologically deficient or present something distorted. The most frequent offenders here are hymns that celebrate the assembly at Mass, but which make no or only passing reference to God. So a good barometer is to count the pronouns. How many times in the hymn does we show up? And that's not to say that all hymns that make reference to us are bad, but remember, Mass is about the worship of God. We should be singing about Him and what He has done, not just about ourselves. The point of bringing all this up isn't to skewer what people like or to say that only the hymns that the deacon says are okay are the ones we're going to use at Mass. We like what we like for hundreds of different reasons, and we don't always know why we like what we like. It might be tied to a memory or to a powerful chord or a movement in the music or a key we like played on an instrument whose sound we really enjoy, and that's all fine. But for Mass, what I like is not the measure of what should be selected. What should be selected are those hymns that enable the assembly to worship God in spirit and truth, and which work together with all the other parts of the Mass to accomplish what the Divine Liturgy should accomplish. The communion of each soul with Jesus Christ as the sacrificial victim whose death reconciles sinners. There are times for all the other things music can express and the feelings that music could summon, but maybe Mass isn't always that time. If this really is a problem, that the music being sung at the Mass you attend is inappropriate for the liturgy, you might need to share those concerns with your pastor. And I know I might get some annoyed messages from pastors about this, but I'll accept that. The pastor is the chief liturgist of the parish, and he's responsible for everything that happens in the liturgy. If unsuitable hymns are being sung during Mass, ultimately that falls on him. Be gracious and courteous about it, but if conscience demands it because the hymns don't glorify God, talk to him about it. You might not be able to be a part of the procession, at the beginning of Mass. But assuming that the music selected for Mass is not heretical, you can participate in that procession with your singing. Many of us are reticent about singing in public because we're not good at it, and it's potentially embarrassing to be shown publicly as not good at it. We've been infected with the germ of performance. People who sing publicly do so because they're really good at it, and they win applause in recognition of how good they are. And if I'm not like that, I should just keep my mouth shut. Bad performers get booed off the stage as they're pelted with rotten fruits and spoiled vegetables, and nobody wants that. But all that only works if you're singing as a performance for an audience who's evaluating your expertise. If you pay $200 for opera tickets and the diva's voice cracks in the middle of the aria, you might be disappointed. But you're not singing in the Mass because you're performing. You're serenading your Lord with your voice and with your song. The audience is not the people around you. The audience is the Blessed Trinity, and they deserve your song. Mass is an act of worship, and worship is the communion of the whole person with God, not just the mind, not just the words, not just the heart, but the whole thing. Your voice is a part of you, and it's something you should offer to God in praise and thanksgiving. And even if you're the most tone-deaf, off-key singer in the world, remember the venerable words of Deacon John Mann, another of the deacons here at St. Anne. God gave you your voice, Singing is your way of paying him back. I don't mean to belabor this point, but if you want your next Mass to be the best Mass of your life, the one during which you give to God everything you have to give, you don't really have the liberty to say to God, I'll give you my time, but not my voice. The Mass is our privileged opportunity to offer all that we are and all that we have to God. We might not feel like it, and we might not particularly enjoy it, But as an act of the will, we can do it, even when we don't feel like it or enjoy it. Usually, when we enter the Church or when we get to the pew, we'll genuflect to the tabernacle. We acknowledge with a gesture of humility and supplication that the King, the Lord and Master of Creation, is reposed in the tabernacle. Genuflecting to the tabernacle is a proclamation made with our bodies that Jesus is really and truly and substantially present in the Eucharist. The priest will genuflect when he reaches the foot of the altar, but the deacon won't. That's because the deacon is carrying the Book of the Gospels. The deacon will enter the sanctuary and place the Book of the Gospels on the altar. Now, on a logistical level, this is silly. The gospel is going to be proclaimed from the ambo, so why not place the book of the gospels directly on the ambo? Why put the book of the gospels on a place that seems so disconnected from its proclamation? Well, because it's not disconnected. The Christ who is proclaimed in the gospels is the same Christ who will be made present on the altar. The word of God and the body and blood of Jesus Christ aren't independent realities. They're supposed to be together because they express the same reality. Once the priest genuflects, the focus of the liturgy changes. Before the liturgy, we reverence the tabernacle. But once the priest reaches the altar, the focus of the liturgy becomes the altar. Pay attention to this the next time you're at Mass. When anyone who is serving as a minister for the Mass—the priest or deacon, the readers, the servers—when they cross the center line of the Church, they don't genuflect to the tabernacle, they bow to the altar. And this might seem like it's liturgically fussy, but it's really significant. In anticipation of what and who is going to be presented on the altar, that altar is at the forefront of the attention of the Mass's ministers. The way the priest will signal this shift is to reverence the altar when he arrives at it. In most cases, this means that he'll place his hands on the top of the altar and kiss it. A deacon also reverences the altar by kissing it, but the deacon doesn't touch the altar. That's reserved for the priest alone. It's through the priest's hands that the Eucharist will be consecrated. It's through the priest's hands that the blessing of Almighty God will be imparted to the faithful. So it is the priest's hands that will touch the altar. Now, remember, everything means something in the Catholic Mass. There's nothing there just for the heck of it. And it's a worthwhile question to contemplate. Why kiss the altar? Well, I'll offer two reasons. One has to do with the very purpose and identity of the Mass, which is the collaboration of all creation in the worship of God, by the people of God, with Jesus Christ at their head. All of the Mass is an offering made by the Son, in the Spirit, to the Father. The first action in the Bible that's attributed to the Father is speech. God speaks, and from his mouth comes the Word of God, that is the Son, and the breath of God, which is the Spirit. And through that, all creation sprung forth, kissing the altar, a gesture done with the mouth remembers that all of creation in the beginning was intimately united with God in an act of pure worship and signals that this little bit of creation seeks to join itself to that act of adoration. The word adoration comes from two Latin words, ad and ora. Ad means to or toward, and ora means mouth. Adoration means towards the mouth, And that's embedded into the beginning of the liturgy. A kiss is an affectionate gesture, but it goes even further than that. A kiss shared by a lover and beloved is a symbol of intimacy. You have to be close to somebody to kiss them. The embrace and kiss of the altar is a signal to everyone present that God is so close to us in the Mass that we could kiss him. God hasn't just promised to be near, he is near. And he has chosen entirely out of love to join himself to his people. He doesn't need our worship, and our worship adds nothing to God's glory. But God condescends to us and makes himself present to us so intimately and so tenderly that a kiss is its best expression. And it's not just the priest who does this. He might be the one at the altar, but you are God's beloved too. So many times we can fall into the trap of thinking that because we're not the ones doing a part of Mass, that it has nothing to do with us. That's the priest's thing can seep into our understanding, and when it does, we can stop paying attention to those things. If you can really accept that you participate and cooperate with every single part of the liturgy, that every part of the Mass includes you, even if you're not the one saying the words or doing the things, I think the richness of the Mass can really open up. What the priest does during the Mass is done for you, not just for himself. When the priest kisses the altar, he's doing it for you. The next time you're at Mass, pay attention to this moment and imagine yourself greeting your Lord with a kiss. This is a dangerous thing to imagine. Remember the sinful woman who interrupted Jesus' dinner with the Pharisees in Luke's gospel to anoint his feet and to kiss them. But also remember that Judas greeted the Lord with a kiss in the Garden of Gethsemane after the Last Supper. We should want to be that woman a sinner who has been transformed by grace and in gratitude and worship embraces our Lord. But sometimes we're like Judas, pledged to follow Jesus, but betraying him through our silent and hidden actions. The Kiss of the Altar realizes that we are both of those characters, and that if we're ever going to be where the woman was and to avoid where Judas was, we have to cling to Christ. The other reason we kiss the altar in reverence at the beginning of Mass is because of what the altar is. A few episodes ago I talked about the Catholic Church's liturgical legislation about altars. They should be stone, or at least wood, of noble construction and permanently fixed in place. The Church has this legislation not because it enjoys being fussy about the furniture in the church building—far from it. The altar is not a piece of furniture. It's not an adornment or a decoration. Remember, everything in the Mass is about Jesus Christ. Within the context of the Mass, the altar represents Jesus. It's a big hunk of stone that reminds us that Jesus is the stone rejected by the builders that has become the cornerstone of God's house. This image of the stone originally appears in the Psalms, but it gets picked up in the New Testament by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Peter. Because the altar is supposed to be an icon of Jesus. Kissing it is an icon of embracing Christ. But an altar isn't just a hunk of rock. You can go out into nature and see lots of big rocks lying around, but that doesn't mean those rocks are altars. An altar is a place of sacrifice. The fact that we call our altars altars and not merely tables means that it is in some way associated with sacrifice. And if the altar is an icon of Jesus Christ, in addition to connoting sacrifice, the altar must convey not just any sacrifice but that of Jesus Christ himself. Within the celebration of the liturgy, the altar is an extension of the cross of Calvary. Kissing the altar is equivalent to kissing the holy rood upon which hung the Savior of the world. The next time you're at Mass, imagine that when the priest and the deacon reverence the altar with a kiss, that you are kissing the very cross of Christ. The whole point of these episodes of Forming Our Faith is for your next Mass to be the best Mass you've ever attended, and I think this by itself has the power to accomplish that end. The Mass brings the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on Good Friday into our sight and into our presence, and in thanksgiving and awe for God's goodness, What else would we do but embrace our Lord? Since most altars in Latin Catholic churches face the people, there should be a crucifix on the altar that faces the priest to remind him of the continuity between the cross and the altar. The people at the assembly have the grand crucifix to remind them of this continuity, but if the priest's back is to that cross, he needs to be reminded of it too. If incense is being used at the Mass, the thurifer will approach the priest with the thurible, and the priest will load it with incense so that he can incense the altar and the cross on the altar. Incense is a precious substance. It's the resin of certain trees that makes a fragrant aroma when it's burned, and some of these trees are rare. As we know from economics, rare things are expensive. So using incense in our worship of God is the dedication of something valuable, something which has a high cost associated with it. Ancient Israel used incense in the temple in Jerusalem on the altar in the holy place, which was right next to the Holy of Holies, the very dwelling of God on earth. And there was an altar there on which incense would be offered twice a day. This is where Zechariah, at the beginning of Luke's Gospel, encounters the angel who announces that he and Elizabeth will conceive a son, and he's in there because he's the priest selected to offer incense. Incense, when it's burned, produces smoke, and the smoke is a symbol of God's presence, which you'll recall from the last time happened in the Exodus in the pillar of cloud. Incense might be costly, But remember, the whole point of our participation in the liturgy is so that we can make ourselves offerings to God. The costliest thing we offer isn't incense, but our very selves. God doesn't want something from us. He wants someone from us. Us. And all of us. This is one of the reasons many Catholic churches are so ornately and lavishly appointed. And why the articles used during the liturgy are made from precious metals and expensive fabrics. It's not ostentation or showiness for the sake of performance, but because we want to offer to God the very best of what we have. God doesn't need any of our offerings, but because we want to acknowledge God's magnificence, we use the very best because God is the very best. The Church has been and continues to be criticized by a world that doesn't quite understand this. Why do you guys have all this gold and fine art? What's the point? The point is that these are the most precious material things we have, and we offer them because they symbolize the most precious offering we can make ourselves. But we have to have the integrity to actually offer ourselves, to not be content with dedicating the gold and the silk and the incense to God but withholding the one thing God actually wants from us. There's supposed to be a kind of organic unity to this action at the beginning of Mass, a blending of symbols that shows us exactly what's going on, but which requires some biblical literacy on our part. Incense reminds us of God's presence in the tabernacle of the temple, and the altar is the location of sacrifice, and it's liturgically equivalent to the cross. It's like the church is using all these biblical images to form a billboard screaming at us, God is here. And the rest of the mass is the presentation of the many ways that God is present. During the liturgy, God is present to us in at least four ways, and those ways coalesce in the worship of the mass. God is present in the blessed sacrament that will be confected. God is present in the word that is proclaimed. God is present in the priest who stands in the person of Christ. God is present in the assembly who come together in Jesus' name. And check out everything that has happened in the first minute or two of Mass. The priest and the other ministers have processed through the midst of and for the entire assembly, approaching the altar where the book of the Gospels has been placed and where later the body and blood of Jesus Christ will be presented to us. The Mass is all about Jesus Christ because only in and through and with Jesus Christ can we worship God the Father in justice and spirit and truth, and he is there. It feels almost comical to say, and it would be if it weren't true, but we're only a few minutes into the Mass and we've already been deluged with images and words and symbols that communicate to us the communion that should be happening. There's nothing else we do in our lives that has so much meaning packed into every square inch and every second as there is in the Mass. And Imagine if we fully appreciated this treasure trove of symbol and what it's inviting us into. Imagine how right from the beginning, from the first note or first knell of the church bell, we're being bombarded with opportunity to recognize, appreciate, and worship God. You could never be bored during Mass because every breath and every step unveils the presence of God more and more. We get to see what Israel longed to see, what countless generations of men and women lived and died without ever beholding. And we can have this every day if we wish. We get to stand shoulder to shoulder with the saints, knowing both that we are called to join them and that what we're doing right now in time, they are doing in eternity. And we're only a few minutes in. After the incensing of the altar and the cross, the priest moves to the part of the sanctuary that contains his chair. If you know anything about Catholic liturgy, you know that there's a rhythm of gestures and bodily positions, and that sitting is one of them. So we could say, and we wouldn't be wrong, that the priest's chair is there because we sit during certain parts of the Mass, and that it's just a piece of furniture that allows the priest to do that. But remember, Nothing is just there. And everything is significant in the church. Everything is in the church because it's supposed to represent, or symbolize, or point to, or remind us of Jesus Christ. And even a chair can do that. The next time you're in church, look at the chair in which the priest sits during Mass. It's not just any chair. In fact, along with the altar and the ambo, the chair is one of the principal liturgical furnishings in the sanctuary. It's not a folding chair that's been taken from the church hall. There's some gravity to it. It's probably not like a chair you'd have in your house or office, and it's probably not the most functional or comfortable piece of furniture. That's because it's a special and particular kind of chair. It's not a recliner or a lounger or an office chair. It's not meant to be ergonomically helpful. It's meant to be kind of like, but not exactly like, a throne. A king reigns from his throne, so the throne is a symbol of a king's authority. It's a symbol of his kingship. Even if he's not seated on it, it's not treated like any or every other chair. No one else can or should rightfully sit in it. Jesus Christ is the King of Kings, and the King of Kings deserves to be seated on the throne of thrones. During the liturgy, the priest stands or sits in the person of Christ, so there's something appropriate about the priest being seated on something that's more than just a chair. But though Jesus Christ has shared his priesthood with the ministerial priest, he still transcends whatever authority he shared with the priest, so the priest is not seated on the throne of Jesus Christ. That's why we don't call what the priest or even what the bishop sits in a throne. We all celebrate Mass, so we can't call the priest's chair simply the celebrant's chair. But the priest does preside at Mass as its principal celebrant, so the proper term for his chair is the presider's chair. The Catholic Church absolutely believes that Jesus Christ is the chief liturgist in the Church and that he is at the head of every liturgical assembly. In the heavenly liturgy, Christ is rightly seated on a throne. During the earthly liturgy that is a foretaste of the Eternal One, the priest, who is in the person of Christ, is seated on something that's kind of a copy of the celestial throne. It should be august and regal, but there should also be something sedate about it. The symbolism should be clear because the identity and the ministry of the priest should be clear. Christ governs and sanctifies his church, And the priest has the responsibility to govern and to sanctify the sliver of the church that's been entrusted to his care. His chair is a symbol of that trust. I'm struck in this moment by how much time I've spent informing our faith, talking about where people sit during Mass. That's not a subject I imagined when we hatched the idea for this podcast. I've spent more than a few words about it. But here we are, almost five episodes into the podcast, and I've probably spent a good 30 minutes talking about the significance of the seating during the Mass. I think there's a lesson here. One will do well to learn and to appreciate that we can pray the Mass well. We don't sit in things that resemble thrones. Only the priest does. And that should signal to us that there's some distinction between us and the priest, not in our dignity as sons and daughters of God, but in how we live our priesthood. We are assembled at the liturgy because of our common baptism. The ministerial priest presides because of his ordination. All of us are priests by virtue of our baptism, but the ministerial priest has had the hands of the bishop laid on him to be the image of Christ the priest for the Church and for the world. When this distinction gets blurred, some screwy things can happen. When the priesthood of the baptized and the ministerial priesthood get confused, no less than the integrity of the worship of Almighty God is at stake, so much so that something solemn and sacred can be made profane and grotesque. I speak about this carefully, but I think it's important to speak about. There's a story in the book of Leviticus about Nadab and Abihu, who are sons of Aaron, Moses's brother, who was the first high priest of Israel. In Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu offered unauthorized fire to God, a transgression so serious that they are struck dead. Their intent, I'm pretty sure, was to worship God, but they did so in a way that God neither commanded nor permitted, and the consequence for it was their lives. We should have the same reverence and care about the Mass. The Mass is not about us and about what we want, and about trying to shoehorn our human agenda into the liturgy. This turns the liturgy into something it's not. The liturgy is not the place for the broadcasting of political or social statements. The Mass is not propaganda for this or that cause. The Mass is not a platform for any human concern. The Mass is for the worship of God. And to try to make it anything else is to risk placing ourselves next to Nadab and Abihu. I think this can be a big issue whenever anyone wants to attach a theme to the Mass. And I need to be clear, I'm not saying that those themes are bad or that paying attention to them is inappropriate. The most pressing and concerning issues of our time should be voiced by the church, and they should be taken to prayer. We're all too familiar with many of those issues. The plight of people caught in war zones, the scourges of racism and sexism and classism, The injustice of global economic imbalance, the degradation of our shared home, the tyranny of discrimination—all of those things need to be addressed by our Catholic faith so that the faithful know how to respond to them and how to act with charity and justice and integrity. But the Mass can't be the medium for that address. I bring this up now because there are movements that usurp the true purpose of the Mass, The worthy worship of God with subordinate purposes. And again, it's not that those subordinate purposes are necessarily bad, but that their usurpation of the worship of God is always inappropriate. A similar kind of move can be made regarding the ministry of the priest. There have been attempts to reform the mass so that what is proper to the priest is instead given to others in the assembly. And I promise you, when this happens, the worship of God is not just affected, It is degraded. The Church has provided everything for the solemn, sacred, and worthy worship of God, and we shouldn't try to tinker with it, even if it's for a reason we think is a noble one. Last March, Pope Francis consecrated Russia and the Ukraine to the Immaculate Heart of Mary. He did so in response to the war and the violence that followed the invasion in the Ukraine. And he invited all bishops and priests around the world to pray the same prayer of consecration at the same time, begging for Our Lady's intercession for those whose homeland had become a battleground and whose lives and families were being destroyed. Very wisely, Pope Francis prayed this prayer of consecration during the celebration of the Stations of the Cross in St. Peter's Basilica. That's part of the Church's prayer, but it's not a Mass and the Stations, even when they're prayed publicly, are not part of the Church's public prayer. Private devotion can be tailored and molded to accommodate and include our human concerns, and something like the Stations of the Cross, which is the contemplation of Christ's Passion, is an opportune occasion to pray for those who are suffering grievously like innocents in a war. The Church's public prayer, which is the Mass and the Liturgy of the Hours, are only about the worship of God, and even intercessory prayer asking for divine protection for those in harm fall short of the worship of God if and when it becomes the theme of the liturgy. There are intercessions, but they have specific locations within the liturgy. The point here is that just as there's a distinction between public and private prayer, and that distinction is substantially meaningful, There's a distinction between the priest and the assembly. It's not that the priest is better than the rest of the assembly or holier or closer to God, but that he is different, not only in what he does, but in what he is. Through his ordination, he is conformed to the image of Christ the priest in a way that you or I are not. I think it might be a part of the mystery God allows to remain among us as to why these men are permitted such a confirmation. And it's for us to uplift these men with our prayers. The only alternative is a kind of anarchy in which everyone does what they want and not what God and His church want. And there's much precedent, both biblical and in the history of the church, to convince us that that never ends well. Ministry can be a sensitive topic among Catholics, and it's important when we're trying to be formed in our faith that not everything in that formation will be comfortable to us. Just like the Mass is a richly constructed tapestry in which every strand has meaning that ultimately comes from God himself, so does the Church's understanding and theology of ministry. After we finish with the Mass, at some point, forming our faith will touch on the sacraments. And when we get there, we'll see how ministry in the Church is related to the sacraments we've received and the graces those sacraments bestow. After the procession with its antiphon or hymn, the genuflection, the reverencing, and incensing of the altar, and the priest's movement to his chair, we get the first prayer of the Mass, the sign of the cross. Most Catholics, when we enter into the Church, make the sign of the cross with holy water, and we might make the sign of the cross again when we genuflect to the tabernacle before we enter our pew. A few episodes ago I talked about this. Holy water is a reminder of the waters of baptism, when the sign of the cross was first made on us and over us as newly reborn sons and daughters of God. All that still applies, but there's something else about this sign of the cross that opens Mass. As Catholics, we're accustomed to making the sign of the cross when we begin and end prayer. Calling upon the persons of the Trinity to hear and receive our prayer bookends Catholic devotion. Because Mass both begins and ends with the sign of the cross, we can understand Mass itself as a prayer. This can get a little jumbled. There are particular prayers within the structure of the Mass, and they each have their own forms and expressions. But these individual prayers within the Mass are neither begun nor ended with the sign of the cross. So what I'm suggesting is that the entire Mass is a unified and organic thing, the whole of which is a prayer. I've said it multiple times today. The function of the Mass is the worship of God by the people of God, and all of Mass contributes to and is part of this worship. I think we can promote or demote certain parts of the Mass as more or less important, and while there are principal or subordinate parts of the Mass, Everything in the Mass is meant to worship God. And that means that everything in the Mass has to be approached with the same care and attention that we devote to prayer. But this only works if we are people of prayer. If you pray earnestly and devoutly, Mass will be earnest and devout. If you pray sloppily and distractedly, Mass will be sloppy and distracted. To put it another way, We might spend an hour in church each week, but if the other 167 hours of the week aren't full of prayer, that one hour in church isn't likely to be full of prayer either. Understanding that Mass is framed as a prayer tells us something about the Mass, but it also tells us something about our lives of faith outside the Mass. Remember that God wants you—all of you. But God doesn't just want all of you for one hour a week. He wants all of you all of the time. Most of us are not contemplative religious who are cloistered in convents and monasteries who have taken vows to pray unceasingly. So most of us can't spend all our time in the church. We have to go to work and to school and cook dinners and mow our yards and do the stuff of our lives. God wants you during those times, too. And prayer is the way you give all of yourself to God, whether it's during the Mass or outside of the Mass. When I was growing up, I learned to say my prayers. That meant I had committed to memory a number of rote prayers that form the backbone of Catholic piety. The Our Father, the Hail Mary, the Glory Be, the act of contrition. For me as a boy, praying meant saying these prayers. And it's good to say these prayers. But as an adult, I've grown to understand that prayer isn't just something we do every once in a while when we feel like it, or when we think of it, or when things get rough. Prayer has to be something we are. We have to make our lives as a prayer, make every moment a sacrifice to God, and that goes far beyond the words we say. The way you are at work can be a prayer, even if your work has nothing to do with the church or with the faith. The way you are in your family can be a prayer, even if things are messy and you wouldn't want to post them on Instagram. The way you are with your neighbors can be a prayer. If you're living the life of grace and refusing to settle, for anything less than the heroism you were made for, you're not just saying prayers, you're living your prayers because you are a prayer. You've sought to offer yourself to God in all things, not just the churchy stuff, trying to act and to love with the will and the heart of Jesus Christ. And this is what you're called to. This is what you're made for. The attitude we need to have at Mass is the same attitude we need to have when we're anywhere else knowing, wanting, and doing God's will for his sake and for the love of our neighbors. Imagine what our lives would look like if we really lived this way, if we allowed grace to make and to keep whole what we have fractured and fragmented. Imagine how much joy we'd have living like this in a consistent way and never having to worry about how we'd act in certain situations. Imagine how attractive that way of being would be to others. But here's the thing. You were made to live like that. You were made to be an uninterrupted, integrated, seamless offering to God. You were created for heroism, and living that way is heroic. Being and living a prayer is heroic. And God has given you all the grace you need to live that way. So the questions hang in the balance. Are you? And if you're not, why not? You can find more episodes of Forming Our Faith on the Eastern Oklahoma Catholic Podcast.